Dr. Kuntz, uh, you recommended a book a while ago about economic collapse in Argentina. And one of the most stunning pieces of information in that book is the idea that the average suburban Argentinian family was traveling to Disney World in the 90s uh, regularly with yeah. five-star you know, uh, shopping and, That's and right. the whole thing. Uh, things that I definitely didn't do as a privileged white male American. And then um, by 2001, those same families were watching their children starve to death in their neighborhoods, in the suburbs. And it's largely because the debt of the country finally came due. And as our country continues to print money like it's paper, yeah. um, what should we take away from that? You know, what, <laughs> what should we do? Uh, you can take away several things. One is that, like the Argentine ruling class, our, our ruling class, our, the people that run our regime, must not care about us very much, if at all, because although there is obviously massive incompetence in many ways, I don't think absolutely everyone who works at the Federal Reserve, for example, or BlackRock, which manages quantitative easing for the Federal Reserve, is actually completely stupid and doesn't know what inflation does. So they have to understand that what really happens is that it devalues those who hold whatever the standard older currency is, and it benefits those who are able to obtain enough of whatever the new emergent currency will be, whether that is some kind of stable coin or whatever it is that the Fed has in mind. Their pronouncements about economic and financial policy are not decided or clear a lot of the time, except that they're hostile to cryptocurrency. But the nature of what they're going to do about that, the nature of that hostility and the action that they're going to take is not entirely clear. But you can tell that they don't care about us, which there are lots of other indicators of that. But if they did, they would not let the currency with which almost all of us live our lives be devalued so obviously and so rapidly. Yeah. Another one of the things that struck me in the book is that while the devalue of the dollar is very much happening, making so that holding cash is less and less valuable, in the event of the actual collapse when they freeze the banks and all the money that we think we have as numbers just doesn't exist anymore until they decide yeah. to give it back in the new currency, whatever you have as cash in the old currency is actually highly valuable at that time. And so the fine line between, you know, do you hold, do you sell? Yeah. Uh, you know, what are you stockpiling? Is it cigarettes and sardines or is it gold and lead? Um, you know, it's it's a it's a tough time to be alive, Dr. Kuntz. And yeah. then to ask that as a Christian, you know, to ask that question as a Christian. Right. And I, I think that another thing that you can tell from what Aguirre narrates is simply that the vast majority of people and they're probably not set up this way. So don't blame them for it. But the vast majority of people, hopefully not our listeners, are not actually capable of taking any concrete action on the basis of predicted instability. They might know that it's bad. They might understand that it's not a good thing, but they're not actually able to organize their life sufficiently to save for right now or to think, okay, there could be a lot of hardship in the future. What should I do right now? Because it could be in five years. It could be in seven months, it could be in a decade, it could, you know, who knows? Right, right, right. You know, and, and, and so like, when you read that book, you're, you're reading the lessons from a man who himself obviously is able to handle predicted instability. But also another thing to realize is that even if you are able to grasp and take action today on the basis of predicted instability, there will be lots of things like with any new role in life that you might know that you need to know, but you won't know until you have to. Right, right. <laughs> predicted so it, unpredictability. It should, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Predicted unpredictability is hard to reckon with. Yeah, right. And, and I mean, it, it covers everything from, okay, you know, defensive driving or yeah. using yeah, a right. knife to growing your own food to lots of things. Prior, what do you prioritize in your free time? And all of that are things that if I'm a you know relatively affluent person in 1994 in Argentina, I probably see coming because I'm not a total idiot and I don't wake up every day and have no idea what I'm doing. But 
the idea that I'm actually going to take action on that basis rather than just kind of enjoying my life and flying to Miami, you know, several times a year is, you know, that, that chance is a lot smaller than the chance that I recognize something on which I do not act. So I think part of the sifting process that we are going through both socially, but also inside the church very much so is a process of finding out how big the gap is for each of us between what we know and what we actually do about it. How does one find the will to act? I think that the exercise of willpower comes about through practice, much like a lot of things, reading, working well with your hands, lots of things like that. Some of it is going to be natural. I mean, some people, and if you have kids, you know that some kids just have stronger wills than others. I mean, all my kids have strong wills, yeah, but, but they have... Know, to, to be fair on that, yeah. though, I'm a strong-willed person, but I yeah. don't always have the will to do what will I power. want. Willpower. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, and I think that that has to do with when we say strong-willed, sometimes what we mean in modern English is simply stubborn, yes, right. which, which is not actually an action necessarily or, or not directly an action. Whereas willpower is not necessarily stubbornness. It, it may be... I mean, flexibility actually comes naturally to me, despite being quote strong willed. So I, I have to, I have to force myself not to be flexible on certain things that I have realized I should not be flexible on. So I have to will myself into inflexibility. Hmm. So I don't think that willpower or the exercise of will is quite the same thing as being stubborn. And that distinction is important because it means that none of this actually comes let's say totally naturally, mm -hmm. because even in a child who is strong-willed, that will and willpower, even with their strength, has to be channeled well. And if it's not channeled well in action, then I just end up being sort of a reactionary person, not in some sort of political sense, but in the sense of everything that I do is conditioned by the latest thing that's, that's poked me. Shifting gears here a little bit, um, although not entirely, how much did the situation preceding the Spanish Republic's descent into civil war reflect the economic collapse in Argentina and or our own? The parallels are, are numerous, especially with current day America, which is why we'll be talking about them over the next couple of weeks. The parallels with Argentina are pretty numerous, partly because Spanish speaking countries will often function politically by virtue of their history similarly to one another in the way that Anglophone countries, because of their common you know, lineage uh, under British common law, will function similarly to each other. So the role of a strong leader, the desire to make a pronunciamiento, which is a public declaration that a coup has been effected, that will, that will figure very strongly in some of this drama that we'll start out narrating in a little bit. But I think that another thing to understand is the incapacity in the Spanish case, but also in the Argentine and American cases, the incapacity of large democratic polities to think clearly about the future. And this has to do with something that I think we've talked about before. One of the difference between republics and monarchies, monarchies variously constituted over human history, is that republics only survive for a long time on a relatively small geographic scale among relatively homogeneous populations. They're not really workable above a certain threshold, which I think has some dependence on geography, but also some dependence on technology's capacity to deal with geographic splits. So in the ancient world, you know, a mountain chain is going to be the limit of your republic, almost undoubtedly. Uh, you can control those mountains to a certain extent and the flat ground near them, but not anybody on the other side of those mountains. And this is something that when you look at modernity, you're dealing with, with technological capacity, you know, at, at least as early as the early 19th century with the printing of newspapers to conquer the problem of what Harold Ennis calls the, the, the issue of space. So ancient empires function by having one guy that's over a vast geographic area. Modern democracies are trying to function by having one set of public opinions about a given issue over a vast area. So the media works in a modern context the way an emperor would work in an ancient context. The problem, the problem is people have way more information about the media 
in a modern context and thus much more cynicism about the regime than they were able to in, you know, 750 BC about the, you know, Assyrian emperor. So one thing that you see in common in all these three situations is massive cynicism produced by a media that's trying to produce consensus. And in the case of the second Spanish Republic, which is 31 to 36, 1931 to 1936, 39, depending on how you, you know, if you want to give them a lot of credit, they weren't really in charge of hardly anything those last three years. But the Second Spanish Republic is actually generally overseen by a man who, before he was a politician, was a journalist. <laughs> so the alignments here between the need to manufacture consensus through journalism and the incapacity of republics to command assent by vastly differing populations along all kinds of different spectra of difference. You see that, I think, especially clearly in all three cases, because it collapses in all three cases. And we in the United States today are at a point where Spain was in the early 1930s before their civil war, but while being governed by a media consensus, no one particularly believed in anymore. How much is the, is this an American phenomena as you narrate this? And how much of this is a global issue? I think a lot of the things that we're dealing with are global issues. I follow plenty of people in uh, Germany because the language I can under, I can understand it easily. Uh, France, um, be but also and, God be praised and bless you. I mean, really, <laughs> but, but the thing that I can see, in, in, but then also the, you know, the English speaking world. So everything from Australia and certain, you know, platforms like telegram, you have, you have access directly to people in those countries that you don't. So, there's a guy that if you're on Telegram, his name is Blair Cottrell, and he, I think, lives in Melbourne. So it's the it's the belly of the beast. And you have access to videos, and he's going to show you something. You're, you're not going to, you, you're going to search in vain for pictures of Australian grocery stores right now. You're not going to see that they're totally empty because no media organization, and certainly nobody outside Australia, is going to show you the trucker strike that's going on right now to protest vaccine passports and hmm. lockdown measures. So I follow those things and I see commonalities because we're all living under the largest attempt and uh, the most heavily saturated attempt via smartphones to manufacture consent that we have ever dealt with. And it makes certain things that we haven't even really talked about something I'm looking into right now, maybe we'll do in the future is the history of and it was called this propaganda in the United States, which is get started with us in order to create consensus to get into various wars. That that effort you can see underway everywhere by everyone. So Germans deal with this, French deal with this, English speakers deal with this. Scandinavians have, uh, and there, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about Scandinavia, but Sweden never really bought in. Um, and that's and, something. Yeah, they never really bought in. Um, Denmark is kind of done with COVID, which you don't usually think like. How are they are doing places? that as part of the EU? Is what I don't get. Yeah, well, the Scandinavians are not all in the EU in quite the same way. So huh. there's kind of levels of being in the EU. Are Everybody you saying? Are you saying some animals are more equal than others? <laughs> saying, I'm saying some Scandinavians figured out that there were big problems with the EU ah. and that it and that it was a destruction of sovereignty, which was everyone's, I mean, that, you know, that's the, the original objection of the Norwegians to Hitler, as we talked about in the last episode, was not, you know, Hitler's position on this, that, or the other thing. It was, they, they clearly understood he was trying to form some kind of European empire yeah, under yeah. German sovereignty. And so there are plenty of Europeans who don't see the European Union as, you know, categorically distinct yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> from what they tried to, what they understand they tried to stop Germany from doing twice in the 20th century, which was dominating Europe. I'm right? surprised Sweden has not been louder in the so-called alt-right media, uh, just as a, a place of obviousness. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really. It, yeah, it, there, there are a couple of voices and that's partly because Swedes are so good at English, hmm. but yeah, they generally, they, they have, they do not have Anglophone free speech laws. So that, that does Anglophone. I'm just going to say American at this point. Hmm. I mean, the rest of it's up for grabs, right? But free speech as such does not exist in European countries. That doesn't mean that, I mean, they're, they're actually much better on things like data protection and privacy vis-a-vis -vis Silicon Valley than we are. 
yeah, hands right, down. No right, question. Right, right. I'm not I'm not saying that, but I, I am saying that you simply cannot say the same things that you say if you are an American under American jurisdiction, at least for now, if you weren't involved with January 6th. You can't say the things that you can say as an American um, hardly anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like our Second Amendment, right? It doesn't mean that no one else knows or cares about guns. It's just that part of our glorious patrimony <laughs> is is a certain extent of freedom and a, and a vehemence about it that isn't shared by everyone. But that that's part of the reason. And, and, and part of it, especially with continental Europe, is a language barrier because Germans and, and Frenchmen don't have the same facility with English that, that, that Scandinavians generally do. So we know less about what's going on there. But I see the threats as extremely common and the sort of nannying as extremely common and, you know, the, the sallow-faced female bureaucrat in a pantsuit <laughs> that you're going to find that everywhere in the developed world at this point. And, and she's always telling you to put a mask on. Yeah, mama. You, um, the lot, man, I held a thought. I, I held a thought for 30 <laughs> seconds and the yeah. last bit about mama got me, dude. Okay. So it's over now. We're just going to talk about that. But yeah, I think, I think, I think there's, there's so much that we have in common with people from around the world. And I know that partly because we have some fantastic Australian listeners, one of whom generally comments on every single episode on Podbean. So we appreciate all the listeners, but especially the Aussies. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you guys are living yeah. it. So I remembered it's the first amendment uh, that is downright prophetic. If you're, if you're going to talk about propaganda and the current zeitgeist is the history of propaganda uh, with the printing press being a new form of it, right? But we can understand that the preacher... The, the traveling monk was a form of propaganda in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the history of propaganda um, and the First Amendment saying the right to a free press is like the very opposite of what we're seeing happen, right? The press is yeah. not free and they don't want to be free. They want to rule right. instead. Right. And so, you know, we, all the fight about the Second Amendment, I've always understood is really being about protecting the First Amendment, but maybe we should grab the First Amendment harder at this point and uh, publish, publish, yeah, publish. And, uh, yeah, no, that's right. And I, I think that the left was very strategic about this um, during the 1960s, that they they presented themselves as in favor of free speech, which, of course, as we'll talk, talk about later today, no, no true leftist is ever actually in favor of free speech. And that the context for free speech and, and especially of a free press was, again, on a certain scale, that is, a local press could critique local rulers mm-hmm. and get away with it. That's what John Peter Zenger was fighting for in colonial Virginia. There was not an idea that a free press meant that we would have essentially two national papers, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, maybe including the CIA-backed Washington Post, (laughs) Amazon-backed, what's the difference, Washington Post. And those papers would tell us what to do. And if you attack them, you would be attacking, quote, our democracy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was not the idea. The idea was not that journalists were above critique as such, but that the right to speak your mind freely also through the press was above critique. And that was seen as basic to the functioning of a republic, which is always, I mean, it's always the case. I mean, that's in the New Testament when Paul uses the word parousia or boldness. He's using a Greek Republican word about the way that a citizen speaks because he speaks without fear of his life because he is a free man. So mm-hmm. if you can't speak that way, you can't really have a republic. Right, right, right. I would say you can't have a kingdom either, honestly, but that's a different topic. Do we need any more Spanish Republic story before we talk about the nature of the left? Yeah, we need just a little bit because this will explain what the stakes are and how people react. So we're talking today about a really small amount of time. 1931, when Spain becomes a republic again, it is a sort of a dictatorship, but with a king as well. So a kind of constitutional monarchy plus dictatorship uh, under a man named Miguel Primo de Rivera. Until 31, then confidence is lost in that form of government via local elections. And the king leaves Alfonso Thirteenth. And Spain becomes a republic. It had been a republic for a brief time years prior. But so from 31 to 36, and 36 is when the Spanish Civil War begins in earnest. That's something I'm happy to talk about if the listeners are more interested, but it's not immediately relevant to our purposes because we're not 
we are not quite there yet. 31 to 36 is fascinating because in such a small period of time, the leftist government, which is called Republican with a capital R, is going to govern apparently according to the constitution that, that comes in with them in 1931 and directed by a man who's first prime minister of war, then prime minister, then later president of the Republic, Manuel Asanya. He is a lot like figures that we find in the modern Democratic Party, where he's still apparently governing according to legal norms, but he's under enormous pressure from his own political coalition, which includes anarchists and communists, to do things that are not constitutional, especially to be violent or uh, clear, uh, clearly repudiating the right. This is extremely fragile. There is an attempted coup from the right in 1932. There is an attempted coup from the left by, they're called anarcho-syndicalists. That has to do with the way that they organize trade unions. They're just farther to the left, let's say, inside this uh, constellation of different groups. In 34, those are both put down by the Republic, the anarcho-syndicalists with much greater difficulty than the right-wing military figures in 32. But there are show trials, there are incarceration of political opponents, and there's rising levels of just disorder and violence throughout the country during this five-year period. It's at the point where the right realizes due to an assassination on the 12th of July, 1936, of a man who was sort of moderately right-wing, Jose Calvo Sotelo. His assassination sparks massive apathy on the right, which includes almost all military officers, toward the idea of political participation. So they say at that point, we can't fix this. They're not going to allow us into office because there had been instances where coalitions of the right had clearly won a popular vote in prior years and had not even been allowed to form a government in this parliamentary system. And by 36, the right had become convinced before the assassination of Sotelo that the elections of that year had been completely rigged. Yeah, right. So if I can interrupt there. So we kind of just started down this path for some of us, and it might take the next election to finally finish us off, but that's where we are. I mean, golly. Yeah. Yeah. That's where we are. Yeah. And so it's, it's it's that indifference toward any solution inside the system, especially by being locked out of the system, that's going to cause in 1936 Francisco Franco to bring troops up from Spanish North Africa and conquer most of the West and the South in that year. And for Emilio Mola to bring troops down from Northeastern Spain and to conquer most of the North. The war will go on for three years because especially Madrid will be held successfully by the left. In addition to other places, Spain is very mountainous and for that reason has always been very politically and even to some extent with the Basques, very ethnically divided, linguistically divided, really. So the war will go, it will drag on for three years with intervention by a variety of figures on the left, which we'll talk about later internationally and on the right, which we mentioned last time and we'll talk about a little bit today as well. Can, but, you, tie, can you tie the Basques in a yeah. little bit? Where, are they involved in this at all or are they just kind of... Yeah, the Basques are involved in... The Basque country is uh, the most industrialized part of Spain. Huh. And, and so um, it is the heart in many ways, uh, not so much of communism as of anarcho-syndicalism. So that is, that the coolest is, sounding that word. is one of the groups on the left. That's the coolest sounding word. Sorry to interrupt you. It's anarcho-syndicalism. Yeah. Can you just, like, what does that mean? It like, should be yeah, a so that's a Yeah, anarcho-syndicalism is a way of organizing trade unions so that they function together with committee leadership. It is very much like small s Soviet government that's combined in this specific Spanish case with an, an anarchist philosophy, mainly derived from French thinkers that will allow them to say, you know, the goal of this is not some version of communism. The goal of this is going to be something that will maximize freedom for the individual worker. Huh? So, yeah, so it's, it, it's pretty weird. And, and combined with everything in Spanish politics and history is, is a component that might have some ideological attachment, but also is fundamentally a question about, are we supposed to centralize more? 
right. or are we supposed right. to fracture more, especially along ethnic and regional lines? It, it took some violence for them, but it seemed like they were working till they got conquered unfairly by the right. I mean, was it was it not working as a governance structure? I mean, I, I, I the republic. Um, the anarcho syndicalists, as oh. you said, they had like a solid. They took a coup and they had power for a while. Like, that's fascinating. How do anarchists do anything organized? I, I'm well, just they lost had a, by yeah. It. That's because syndicalism is the only way to anarchists always have to always have to sort of forget their own principles. It, it's sort of like libertarians; they have to forget their own principles in order to be politically effective. Yeah. yeah. So they and and the, the way in which they are successful. And become a force on the left such that they have to be reckoned with by the governing coalition, which is overseen by, you know, uh, capital R Republicans in Madrid. The way that the way that that works is that they can be successful regionally, especially in a city that dominates mm-hmm. a region as San Sebastian dominates the Basque country, but they can't be successful nationally. So that's the the the, the whole story of the Republic is a story really uh at the end about the right finally getting its own set of demands together uh, in a way that's effective for itself. And we'll talk about that, but it's largely a story about struggles on the left, which are important if you're listening to this and you live in Australia or you live in California, or eventually for all of us on some level nationally, if you live in the United States, because you are under the control of a leftist government under great pressure from its own, farther left wing Mm -hmm. to do things more radically or quickly or whatever their demands might be. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Well, that's the nature of the left. There you go. Right. And so I think that when you're thinking about the left, left and right, and we've talked about not thinking in these terms or not evaluating things in those terms, and that, that is still my advice on the nature of basic questions such as what is the family? What is good for the family? What is the state? What is nature? Is there such a thing as the environment? Should it be protected in any way? Because left and right in that case, I find often serve as mental blocks for people. And they begin to evaluate things based on whom they like or dislike rather than what the question is. But in looking at history, you have to reckon with left and right because it's how Western politics and then via the West world politics gets understood, especially after the French Revolution. I mean, is and, it... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Is it necessary to... I mean, I don't mind for the sake of the conversation, left or right, yeah. is what people are used to saying. Yeah. But like, the point is less about whether there is a left or a right in some sort of dynamic you know, human body or something. Right. Is that there are two poles, and there's a tension and a fight and a pendulum between those two poles of ideas... And they really are counter to each other. And you're going to have a, uh, those ideas are fighting for dominance over the mindset of people. And there's, there's really yeah. no avoiding that in our current West, at least. Right. And I think that one of the things to see here is that for historical purposes, especially as people describe themselves, you have to let them say, I'm on the left or I'm on the right. Yeah. You don't yourself have to say, okay, yeah, I'm on the left or I'm on the right on this issue or in Spanish politics or American politics, but you need to understand why they're there. And when you look at that, and especially I hope the things that we're talking about today, you will understand that that those descriptions may or may not be helpful as such, but they do describe realities. So in the case of the nature of the left, what you see in Spain is that the left is composed of people who have some standing opposition for any variety of reasons to Christianity, because the left will, even their imagery, will call on the imagery. And this is, this is the government, not just pressure groups such as anarchists or communist unions. The government will call on the imagery of the French Revolution, including the phrase liberty, equality, fraternity, mm-hmm. in order to say, this is what the Republic is about. This will necessarily, as it did in the case of the French Revolution, exclude Christianity. So you can see that already in this case, right, that the left is not figured as opposition to, you know, exploitation of workers or something. That's not a basic thing that actually unites it because it will contain also, as the left does in the United States, people who are extremely wealthy and who employ plenty of people 
at something that is very much below a living wage. So if you look not at self-descriptors or statements of intention, but at what people actually do and who actually funds whom, then you will find that the left is a place that is full of, for instance, journalists, right? So the prime minister of the Republic and later its president during the Civil War, as long as it's still its own entity, Manuel Asanya was a journalist before he was a politician. He tried to get Spain to enter the First World War on the side of France. It would not, but he tried and he tried mightily. And his biographer believes that he was funded by French intelligence in that effort. So the left will be composed and was in the case of Spain. And then we can talk about this in the case of America, journalists, people who are against Christianity, also people who have some sort of general grievance that will be somehow nursed. They don't have to share that grievance with other people that are on the left, but if their politics are driven by resentment, such as Basque or Catalan resentment of centralization in Spain, they will be easily weaponized for a government which is devoted not to some specific endeavor, right? So there are any number of things that the Republic began to do when they took office in 31. They wanted to change the nature of land ownership. They didn't want estates to be so concentrated and they thought it would be better for lots of small farmers to have land rather than large absentee landowners to have tenant farmers. I actually think as an economic model, that is more stable. It is more stable and probably better for the rural population for more people to own land than for fewer to own land that is worked by tenants. Sure, how that gets carried out. So that's an example where I guess I agree with, quote, the left in this specific case. But what I'm saying is the left is not composed of those you know, instances of compassion. You're not on the left because you are compassionate. The thing uniting the groups on the Spanish left was resentment. They really had nothing else in common necessarily. Asanya, for instance, did not sympathize with Basque or Catalan nationalism himself. So I think that if you take this and you apply it to America, there's something that you can see very clearly about the left, which is that the various constituencies of the Democratic Party are composed of various kinds of resentment or dislike of other parts of the American population that unites them, right? They're not united by saying, I mean, what is uniting Indian Americans who have an enormous per capita income and generally vote Democratic or Jewish Americans, similar, similar demographics, similar income levels? What's uniting them with Black Americans, really? Like, do they live next to each other? Do they like hanging out? Do they spend a lot of time together? You know, like their, their political interests are not traditional. You know, it's not, it's not a traditional small R Republican matter of we all do come together in the same town meeting and vote on the same issues. They don't even live near each other. They don't know each other. One thing that unites them is that they would be, you know, hostile to something that would decrease redistribution of income, Right. So they're in favor of income redistribution, because if you're wealthy enough, you can escape that. And if you're poor enough, you get redistributed too. If you're in the middle, like a chump, your income's going to be taken and your accountant's not going to be able to avoid it for you. So I think that one thing to understand here is that the left is by nature a question. It is a question of resentment. It is defined in opposition to very often the population of that nation historically, but especially in Christian or formerly Christian countries, it's going to be hostile to Christianity. So something you, at this point uniting the Democratic Party is very obviously um, an interest in continuing and extending the murder of children in the womb. They, they do all agree on that. And they have by and by excised from any importance, any Democrat who disagrees with that. So I think that when you look at the left, especially when it describes itself as such, what you're going to find is that its nature is, is resentment. Its nature is a certain dislike or distaste. Yeah, it's a scapegoating phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that that scapegoating is going to always involve some amount of projection onto someone else of intentions that are when they're expressed, they sound kind of crazy, but they, they really do motivate. So in an American context, this is 
the idea that if you if you let Republicans take over or something, that they are going to institute some. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale is is sort of QAnon for the left, right? So it's it's that you know Texas is turning into a place where women are just you know breeding machines. And, you know, that's why they want to get rid of abortion. And you're going to get like a somehow like a Fortune 500 confluence with Christian patriarchy. And that's going to be the handmaid's tale. And that's just accepted as such. That's that's that conspiracy theory is okay to believe, (laughs) even if, you know, that has just never been the way that America worked. That's okay. That's what's going to happen if, you know, Republicans me laughing out loud if Republicans take over. So (laughs) I think that those kinds of stories, right. And that kind of opposition, especially to people influenced by, let alone institutions that are explicitly Christian is in the nature of the left since the French revolution, our present day left or the Spanish Republican left and the things, you know, on its wings, uh, communist anarchists, those are just specific instances of a general hostility to Christianity that you find anywhere that something that in post-1789 terms calls itself left governs. There will be hostility to Christianity. It's just going to be expressed differently depending on the circumstances. So that makes me want to jump ahead a little bit because you're kind of yeah. defining the left as simply anti-Christianity a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. right, the right is not defined as Christianity, however— No, it's not. And that is important. And that's really perceptive on your part, because even in a Spanish context where you have, relatively speaking, religious homogeneity, everyone grows up Catholic in Spain, certainly prior to 1931. Uh, Even Asanya had, you know, two graduate degrees, including a doctorate from universities, which meant Catholic universities. The right And this is, again, a post-1789 thing. The right is always, I think, sort of embarrassed by the advocacy and the natural consequences of both who its base is and what advocating for its base would actually mean. So whereas on the left, you don't actually have agreement about, let's say, what would be ultimately good in life or how should education be set up? On the right in Spain, the people that win elections in 1934 and are largely not allowed to take office or who aren't even really allowed to compete fairly in 1936, everybody would be okay with, even if they're not to the same degree religiously fervent about the Catholic Church basically running education, which it historically had done. In the same way that I think if you took every Republican voter in the United States today, and the average Trump voter probably doesn't go to church a whole lot, if at all, let's be honest about the nature of church attendance in the United States. But if you said, we're going to let them read the Bible and pray in public schools, if they, excuse me, if they want to, we're just, we're going to let that happen. You know, I think Abington v. Shemp was wrong. And the Supreme Court is not actually the Supreme Authority in the United States constitutionally. So it's barely in the constitution. So we're going to let people in public schools, let alone any other school setting, let alone anybody who receives public funding in public schools. If you want to in Oklahoma, in Idaho, you can pray and you can read the Bible just like we did historically prior to the early 1960s. We're just going to let that happen. No one has to do it, but we're going to let it happen. If you said that on the right, You don't have to say any kind of other moral majority rhetoric. You don't even have to do it yourself because not everybody on the right is actually, you know, equally devout. But you just said, we're going to let the kind of historic American base level Protestantism, that's going to be allowed to happen in public again. Everybody would be for it. One question you have to ask yourself about the nature of the right is why that is not happening. Because in the Spanish context, it didn't happen either until churches were beginning in the early 1930s, they were being burned, just like they are in Canada today. Churches were being burned pretty systemically, especially in leftist controlled areas. But it didn't happen on the right. That is, the Spanish right did not swing to decisive support of Catholicism as the religion of the Spanish people. They did not swing there until there was widespread violence, especially against priests and nuns, the rape of nuns and then their murder, the murder of priests, mass graves, 
it took that to swing the right. So it's extremely perceptive of you to notice that the right is not actually constituted in Western countries, Spain, the United States, anywhere else, by actual defense of the people or the causes that are its obvious base. Yeah. It's generally constituted simply by opposition to the left. Right. So so the left exists as opposition to Christianity and the right exists as the scapegoat for the left. <laughs> I could not have said it better. Yeah. Because the right and, and the right will be pushed into certain positions, often by events. Right. But let, let's give you like a counterexample. Right. So we talked about Germany in the last case. The pushed, I think, partly by, you know, people who are more ideologically and, and in a certain way of saying it, theologically consistent than himself, Hitler advocates for something, at least through ritual and, and sometimes explicitly through party publications, for something that is at least nascently pagan, like explicitly, especially through the SS, right? Because that's where he gets pushed. He doesn't get pushed by the vast majority of his base, which is basically Protestant Germany. He doesn't get, get pushed except sort of in the same way that American presidents, even Democratic presidents, relatively recently, Obama in 2008, talking about being a Christian, and that's why he's opposed to gay marriage. American presidents will give these sort of feints toward the Bible, which is, which is, which is let, let's just be totally honest, that is a feint toward the historic Protestantism of Americans. And it's, it's base level, it's low level, it's not all that clear, but that's what it's for, right? Which covers both black Democrats and almost all whites historically in the United States. And Catholics can sort of be okay with it too. Okay, that's about all Hitler ever does with Christianity. Why is this? It's partly because the German left it does not get constituted in quite the same, obviously anti-clerical way. But even when it does, it's not part of its fundamental identity that it is anti-clerical in every case. And part of his political opposition is actually just Catholic political parties. Whereas in Spain, if there's really only one option, right? So on the question of Christianity, the option is Roman Catholicism. If you're not, then you are against and that is tricky, partly because you can see that if the left is definite and the right is indefinite about what it actually defends, then if the left only has one option, so if the left has an option of being Christian or anti-Christian and there's no room in between like you get in German politics, or the left has the question of you can be, you can say that it's okay for people to be white or you have to be anti-white, or it's okay for people to be anti-gay marriage, or it's not okay for them to be, where there's only two options, the left will be definite and the right will be indefinite unless someone absolutely forces them to be definite. And that is in the nature of the right because the right is not defined as the actual defense of anything or the promotion of anything. It's just not the left. And yet the left, the left is uh, unstable, and as are its practitioners increasingly on camera these days. <laughs> yeah, I mean instability on the left. In in our case, I mean because of pharmaceuticals, is probably a description of people's mental capacities and mental states that they are themselves personally unstable. So. Maybe I mean, you have I mean, when you're when you're screaming at the top of your lungs about Trump in you know the public square, right? Just raging and weeping. I mean, I mean, I remember uh, it was before the Amy Coney Barrett uh, affirmation. They had a, a photo of like these three Catholic women, and they have their hands on the door of the Supreme Court, and they're praying. Mm-hmm. And then there's three other women who are like half stripping their clothes and and wailing at the sky and roiling on the ground in this like amazing, (laughs) I don't know, right? Like there's so much pain and evil in the world because maybe can we bury it all? And and, um, not stable, not stable is is what I would kind of say. No, no. And I, part of that is probably just smartphones, you know, I think. (laughs) Amen, amen, bro. Yeah, I I think, I think people are being gradually driven insane by their technology. Brainwashed. Um, so that, that is part of it. I think the, the left is unstable in a more 
I guess, simple to understand uh, and not technologically determined sense because it is by necessity a coalition because resentment is something that you can call up in people rhetorically, but why it's there and what they want to do about it, they may not agree on, right? And they, they, all, they certainly don't agree on at a large enough group level. So the left is unstable because it may not be that, for instance, you know, Black Democrats who compose such a, you know, solid, reliable voting block for the Democratic Party in the modern American context, that they actually, you know, all just love gay marriage. They just, you know, they just can't vote enough for gay marriage, right? Or that, you know, whites in Portland who have no interest in being, you know, missionary Baptists as their, you know, blacks in Mississippi might that they, you know, just, they absolutely, you know, love and feel passionate about federal funding for historically black colleges, in addition to the preservation of affirmative action. It just doesn't matter to them on a personal level. So if you're going to, if you're going to manage resentment, you have to be really, I think, clear about it. And the instability of the left is the reason why they are very often, I think, much savvier on a tactical level than the right. So in the case of Spain, something that's very savvy on the left during their uh, second Republican period is that Asanya, as well as his, his helpers, manage not only to get themselves into national government by virtue of a crisis of confidence about local elections. So how does that work? Strictly speaking, it doesn't. It works through the management of public opinion through newspapers, and it works through creating constant crises of confidence about anything that your opponents control. So I think that the instability of the left naturally calls into being wherever it survives, right? I mean, it it could just fall apart. And in the case of the, the Spanish left after 36, it does fall apart. It falls apart militarily and thus politically. But the, the, the nature of the left organization around resentment and opposition, especially to deeply rooted historical things such as Christianity in Western countries, is going to, where it does survive, create very nimble operators who understand how to keep a bunch of people together that really don't have a whole lot in common. And so that's going to require especially projection and creation of enemies, right? So if I can associate, you know, white males in the United States with Christianity and being, you know, pro-life, then I can weaponize lots of things. And I think that's why it's always been a tactic of the left. It now has a name in English as a political tactic, but that is the, the, the idea of intersectionality hmm. is not about, not really only for people who live inside academia is intersectionality about understanding the experiences of, you know, trans black women. Intersectionality is really a political tactic that the left very cleverly always uses in order to keep its naturally unstable groups together and moving in some common direction. And is that the pandering you're talking about? Yeah. Well, because it, Intersectionality allows you to create holistic enemies. So rather than saying, okay, you're black in America, so your enemies are white people. You are transgender, so your enemies are cisgender people. Well, I don't really want to say that because there are lots of cisgender black men who don't want to be or like transgender people because they're missionary Baptists in Mississippi, for example. Or you're a woman in America, so you don't like men. What intersectionality does is it says that everybody's resentment, everybody's individual resentments are the concern of everyone who has and operates on the basis of resentment and opposition between blacks and whites, men and women, whatever. Okay, Uh, not to speak of uh, pharmaceutically induced political categories. So what intersectionality lets you do is it says we all have in common this resentment and also intersectionally analyzed, here's your common enemy. In the context of American politics, that's that's a cisgendered white male, Christian, white Christian male, especially. In the context of Spanish politics in the 1930s, 
that's especially going to be a priest who teaches people because that priest represents history. He's probably okay with the exercise of military authority. He historically has been someone who is working alongside landowners and he is teaching habits of obedience, for example, that would cause you not to rise up against the landowner necessarily, not violently probably. So the priest or the nun, nuns being, especially in Catholic history, as we talked about in the education episode, uh, the vehicles of especially Catholic elementary schooling, what you want to find is someone who is going to be a focus for resentment. And intersectionality is a word that we get in the late 80s in American politics. But it's always the way that the left, let's say, concentrates resentment in the same way that a magnifying glass can can concentrate light. And, you know, you can burn a bunch of ants on the ground by concentrating that light that was always there diffusely. So again, now then the left is, I'm thinking, you know, we defined it as Christianity earlier, but it sounds like it's more, the left is a tactic for politics. And that tactic is feed resentment by creating a scapegoat. Yeah. And to do that, you must hate the good past because that's what got you even the worst you got. Like it would have been worse if right. it hadn't been good. And so you yeah. have to aim at something that's real, not something that's not real. And the only thing that's there is what came before. And so you blame what came before for what is, even if it was better than what's going to be. And right. that's where the instability and the tendency of it to self-destruct is, um, well, well, not historical. Yeah. And, I think that it's important to recognize that we're talking about collapses. We're talking about extreme states in this case of political collapse because the Republic tries to manage its own violence and fails and collapses. But the reason that we're talking about extreme states is partly because I think that we are in one and are entering into more of one, but partly also because we're not talking about left and right in American constitutional terms and left and right are sort of like high church and low church imported into the Lutheran church from the Anglican church. Mm. It's someone else's terms for someone else's conflict that then recreates someone else's conflict in our own place mm. and left and right in American terms to demarcate uh, someone's position on, you know, whether or not the 16th Amendment or the 17th Amendment to the Constitution are constitutional is not quite apposite because left and right are come out of a situation in the French Revolution and reveal themselves for the dynamics that they have that we've been talking about and will in the next episode as well, where things are existential. The state may not exist soon. The people may descend into civil war. Left and right are not descriptors that need to be used in a stable Republican or monarchical situation where we all basically agree on how things are supposed to work. We disagree on the outworkings of how things are supposed to work, whether under a constitution or a constitutional monarchy or some kind of elective, any, you know, whatever government formation. Left and right come out of the apocalyptic violence of the French Revolution and the primacy of leftward directions for life against which the right constituted simply by opposition, not by a positive program necessarily, against which the right simply is trying to push back in some way. And the things that we're looking at in the case of Spain are situations in which that apocalyptic violence resurfaces when the left especially collapses. And then you're also pointing out how the left is never satisfied with its level of violence and continues to take more and more because it has to have resentment as its fuel. And so there right. is no peace. There's no end to this war. There must be another scapegoat. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, because there, there's it, it's the left is not really a formation for a body politic. The left is a way of organizing revolutionary violence so that it actually creates a regime. It's right? a way to loot. So, it's a way to loot. It's a way yeah. to loot. Yeah. And so even if you erase whatever class or group has been denominated as, you know, intersectionally inconvenient, you know, uh, small landowners in Soviet in early Soviet Russia, priests in Spain, 
you know, cisgendered white males, whatever, understand that after that, there will be, there will have to be another group because the regime is not constituted by some sort of formation of the body politic that is in any degree healthy. It's constituted by the progress of cancer and the cancer has to keep expanding so that it itself does not die. So some other group will have to be the focus will have to become the target of resentment because otherwise the regime cannot itself continue to exist. So this means that neither party has any positive agenda. That means that there is not, in fact, any rule going on. Um, there's right. only violence. Yeah, and I, I think that, that that gives the lie to the idea that somehow the left can permanently, if it really is leftist, if it is devoted to progress, if it is opposed to Christianity, if it is opposed to the past of Western civilization, that it's all, you know, composed of horrible sins and destruction and, and ravage and stolen land, etc. That is not a group that is actually devoted to anything other than destruction. Mm -hmm. because it is not a group that is able to say positively what its future will be. Its future is always constituted in view of destruction. And the irony here is that when this is expressed clearly politically, politically, not academically, in you know, these vague terms that you get from Foucault, like the other capital O, when it's expressed politically, it will be expressed violently. Because I think the use of violence, which we'll talk about next week, the use of violence is in the nature of the left because the left cannot rest easy with law. It cannot obey even the dictates that it itself passes. And you see that in Spain's history because from the first, when they take power in 31, not only are they being pressured to do extra legal things, especially violent things, but they can pass laws but not even themselves enforce them because yeah. the law is always a means to an end in this case. It's not something that actually governs either the head of state, whoever he is, president, king, whatever, nor does it govern the action of the police or the military. Right. It's, it's always simply a pretext. They pass laws but cannot force them, enforce yeah. them. That is, that is the experience of the state of Illinois right now. And <laughs> the, the more – I mean I'm studying this thing in the belly and yeah. – you know, Prisker has an executive order. Um, there is some fine print apparently on it. So if you read the whole thing, you can see that it is not really as strong as it sounds initially. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but uh, the entire thing is pressuring uh, is the soft totalitarianism we've been talking about. They're pressuring the businesses to make employees uh, vaccinate and to give them a rigmarole if they don't. And it's at the level where I've encouraged at least one person to consider suing because he's like singling, being singled out, which means, what is it? Uh, Oh, now I can't remember which one of the uh, we, we had the civil rights laws that we have that allows that if you have something different about you at work it, that, it, you know, no matter what, they can't treat you differently. Yeah. And um, that's that's happening. Right. So it's like um, that is going on. And what I have had to then as a Christian, again, reckon with is that, you know, I have more than one set of law that I'm being told I'm supposed to believe is true at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, I have the, I yeah. have the Constitution of Illinois. That I'm, I'm supposed to believe is true. I have what the governor is saying that I'm supposed to believe is true. I got what various businesses are saying that I'm supposed to believe is true. And what is happening is uh, everyone who can break the law is breaking it. And since there's no one who can actually enforce it or is going to enforce it, uh, it has fractured the community and made people comfortable with ignoring the law on a wide, right. wide level. Right. And that can only further the ignoring of the laws that they pass. And again, I, I say this in the event that you just say they were at this point in Spain, they're passing laws, they can't enforce them, they think just that the propaganda of the law itself will do what they want. And that is, in fact, yep. what's happening. That is, in fact, yeah. what's happening. Yes. Um, but it is destructive, again, to the society itself. It's totally destructive. And I think if you look at any thoroughly leftist polity in the United States, you'll see exactly what you describe, which is not, you know, San Francisco as the place of like great mass compliance or something, but that instead it leads to the growth of lawlessness of every mm -hmm. kind, because the government itself very obviously is not interested in law or obedience to law. It's interested in power 
and the exercise of power. And that creates enormous cynicism from people who of all kinds, left, right, whatever, however they define themselves towards someone who obviously doesn't even care about its own standards. So I don't think I will ever forget Gavin Newsom's dinner party in San Francisco in 2020, where he wasn't wearing a mask, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he shares not wearing a mask regularly with his enormous homeless population. And the reason he does is that they're both sort of beyond interest in compliance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because neither of them is at all invested in the system. And something that I'm sure we'll talk about next time is what happens when that cynicism and that being beyond investment in this system and this way of running things, what happens when that progresses far enough? So uh, not so much a teaser for next time, but since I know we get to this point in the show and I say something quippy or unquippy and we end it and everyone's like, oh man, it's over already. So <laughs> so I want to give them, uh, you telling us, you know, out of this today, um, what am I really supposed to take from this? Uh, I mean, yeah. aside from what we've been saying every week, you know, the, the yeah. do stuff local. But what was today's real takeaway? Yeah, I would be I would be prepared for levels of instability that you have currently certainly never experienced, but also never thought about. And the reason that we are doing Spain after Germany is because in the last episode, especially, but in both of them on Germany, I wanted people's minds to open up to the reality that not only are you not told enough about history, but also that your imagination for what could occur in your own day is not big enough because you have not been told enough about history. So when what we look at next time and what you can take away from today to begin with is that things could get a great deal worse because we, although our timeline and our situation don't map perfectly onto Spain in the 1930s, they map unusually well. And in fact, better than they map onto Germany, which lost a war and was under occupation. We are living uh, alone as Spain was not under foreign occupation. And we don't agree with each other in, in an enormously expanding, rapidly expanding way. And that lack of agreement on fundamentals. What is the law? Does it need to be followed? Uh, who cares? Who may be killed? Those things are destructive of a body politic. And I don't want to increase cynicism necessarily because that usually leads to inaction. But I do want people to be ready for things that I hope they understand are entirely possible for us because they were possible for Spain listening to a brief history of power to white guys you know where to find us or you would not be here north idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes small town tranquility civil freedom and the faithful lutheran parish of blessed sacrament lutheran church located in hayden idaho near coeur d'alene blessed sacrament lutheran church is a proud sponsor of a brief history of power if you like what you hear on brief history then you will love blessed sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education 
that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.